Hi, and welcome to the Purdue Commercial AgCast from the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture. I'm Brady Brewer, and I'm faculty in the Department of Agricultural Economics. And joining me today is Dr. Todd Keithy, who's also faculty in the Department of Ag Economics. He's an associate professor and also holds the Schrader Chair of Farmland Economics. Today's podcast, we're focusing on everything about farmland values and, and the market that we're seeing right now. Um, so with that, welcome, Todd. And if you want to give a brief introduction to the audience... Hi, my name is Todd Keithy, as Bernie said, and I joined Purdue faculty last fall, so it's been uh, a weird first year, but it's my first year uh, here at Purdue. It's been a great time to be here. Prior to that, I was at the University of Illinois, and I actually started my career after graduate school at the Economic Research Service, uh, just part of the USDA in Washington, D.C. Um, But I'm actually a Purdue grad. I finished my Ph.D. at Purdue about 10 years ago, so it's a bit of a homecoming, and I'm glad to be back. Well, and we're glad to have you back. So with that said, let's jump right into our topic. And, and today's topic, I think, is a pretty important one from a farmer standpoint. If you look at the USDA numbers, uh, farmland typically accounts between 80 to 85 percent of a farmer's balance sheet. So it makes up most of the equity of, of the balance sheet and when you go to get a loan. Uh, and, you know, your main role here in our department is, is to study what's been happening. So in your mind, what what has been recently been going on in, in the farmland market uh here in the past few years. Yeah, so the, as, as you mentioned, it, it is a really a big asset. Uh, it's an important part of, of every farm's balance sheet and considerations. Um, and as a result, there's a lot of us uh, that, that pay pretty close attention to it um, in terms of the, what it does in terms of agricultural finance. Um, over the last few years, farming has been kind of a, an interesting asset class to follow. Um, so right around 2007, 2008, when we had a previous recession um, and a lot of the economy was in, in the tanks and we cut interest rates very low, uh, it was actually a really prosperous time for agriculture. We had very high commodity prices. You know, here in the Corn Belt, uh, the ethanol demand for corn uh, really helped increase commodity prices sort of across the board for a lot of major U.S. commodities. And so as incomes shoot up, uh, then the desirability of farmland uh, as an asset also increases. And so farmland prices actually escalated quite a bit uh, through about 2014 or 15. Uh, since then, we've seen commodity prices come down quite a bit from their record highs. Uh, but farmland prices in most places in the country have moderated slightly, held relatively stable. In fact, it's been a little bit of a mystery for some people because a lot of our basic models that would predict farmland prices uh, would suggest there are times that you know, farmland prices maybe could have come down a little bit more. Yeah, I, I don't know how many academic presentations I sat through that, you know, about the 2014-15 time frame, you know, four or five years ago, that was, are we going to see the, is this the new 1980s, right? And, and just for reference, you know, in 1980s, farmland prices came down 50, you know, more than 50% from their highs um, at the beginning uh, of the 1980s through, you know, throughout the next four or five years, you know, 1983, 84 you know, 50% decline, that's a huge hit to the balance sheet. And that was, you know, that was the talk of, of all the people that study the farmland markets was how big of a decline we were going to see, and then we didn't see it. Yeah, in fact, you know, it's one of the things that, you know, similar to, to you, Brady, I, I do work in both, uh, are in, in research teaching and in extension. In particular, in extension audiences, a lot of our farmers and, and farm operators were farming in the 1980s, right? So that, that's very much a big part of their... Uh, their history and their thoughts of when they think about farm management and farm finance, uh, risk management. Uh, but really, the 1980s were very peculiar. So the fact that the U.S. government has been tracking farmland values since the 1800s 
And we've really only had a couple periods of very steep declines in farmland prices. One obviously was the 1980s farm crisis. Uh, the other was around the 1920s, 1930s. Um, but other than that, farmland prices generally kind of just increase right above the price of inflation. Um, so as peculiar as that big run-up was of uh, the last decade or so in farmland prices, uh, the 1980s were also very peculiar. So I, I, I think there, there are a lot of economists that were saying, like, you know, a typical way of thinking of economists, anytime we see a boom, our national inclinations say this can't last forever, right? Uh, and, and this is going to unwind at some point. So I think maybe part of it was, was, was warning against that, that happening again. But I, I think as peculiar as that period was, the, we don't want to downplay also how peculiar the 80s were in sort of the long history of, of farm markets. Yeah, there was a lot going on there. I mean, 18% interest rates for loans. There was also the credit crisis in the 1980s where some banks went insolvent, and that, that kind of had a snowball effect with what happened in the farmland markets and, and definitely exacerbated the fall, the, the decline in farmland prices we saw. Yeah, I mean, it's similar to, I mean, at the same time also in the 1980s was the savings and loan crisis. Uh, so small businesses, uh, you know, sort of across the U.S. economy were, were really stretched. And not to downplay, you know, the... the what occurred in the 1980s uh, in the farm sector because it was, it was very uh, hard. But I think, I, I think maybe we were overly cautious about the potential decline, rapid decline in farmland values, uh, which is good because you know if you look at the models that we look at in terms of farmland pricing, uh, there's some arguments that could be made that during that commodity or that farmland price increase, uh, prices could have been bid a little bit higher. But I think people were cautious, saying this isn't going to last forever. We're not going to. We can't pencil in 30 years of this happening to justify a price for this asset. So we get to 2015, you know, everyone's expecting a big decline. And really, we've seen stable prices since about the 2015 timeframe. We've seen a little bit of, as you mentioned earlier, a little bit of softening in some areas, but but not across the board. So this kind of brings up the my next question for you. Uh, when you think of, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, when you think of farmland values, how do you value a piece of, uh, of land out there? So uh, that's a really good question. First thing I want to uh, highlight that I always have to say as a caveat is the work that I do is very different than appraisal. And so I, I'm maybe not very good at valuing a particular parcel. So if you had me come out to your farm and walk around, I probably won't be able to give you a very accurate read on that exact price. <laughs> Uh, but I follow prices, as an economist, follow price sort of trends and averages, kind of what's happening across the big picture. Um, and there, like, we always, I always sort of go back to, um, you know, there's that old adage about all models are wrong, but some are useful. And a very useful model we use for farming is just that net present value, which is, you know, basic economics, finance 101 class, where the value of owning anything is what income can you get from owning it. And then we discount that over time because we prefer money now to money in the future, right? So uh, for a variety of reasons, including inflation or risk of the future not happening. Um, and so we really look at essentially two things, which is what is the income uh, for farmland? What, what kind of income can we own from owning it or earn from owning it? And you know, what sort of growth rates do we expect in that income or potential declines in that income? And then how do we discount the, those things based on how likely we think they are to happen? Um, and so how much do we discount the future? Um, and really, you know, every time I talk to a farm audience, I have people ask me about particular sales. And it's usually someone who's disgruntled that thinks the price was too high. Uh, but if you talk to somebody that buys the farmland, 
often we find that it's either the difference in what they think they can earn from owning it, or they have difference in terms of their preferences about discounting those future returns. Um, well, you, you talk about the discount rate, you know, so a big part of the current pricing is the interest rates that, that you get or, or the discount rate. Um, you know, current Fed policy, we've been near the zero lower bound for a while now. So there's also a lot of speculation, you know, we think about through 2015 uh, and the prices being uh, haven't really softened much. Uh, but part of that is that zero lower bound and, and the fact that interest rates have been at a historically low levels. Well, that, that is true. Uh, where I would push back, and I tend to push back a little bit, is this idea of the zero lower bound, um, which is inherently thinking about Fed policy, which sets a discount rate or a very short run overnight deposit. Uh, what we're concerned with is two things. One, we're concerned with mortgage rates, which are set in a, in a marketplace. So we, you know, Mortgage rates don't always respond immediately to Fed policy. It's not like a, uh, you know, the prime loan rate for uh, for loaning to businesses on short run terms. I mean that that reflects directly with what the Fed does. Um, but when you get things with bond traders and markets that are setting uh, mortgage rates, things tend to move a little bit more slowly or um, have their own sort of things that they're watching, right? Um, but but either way, interest rates have been very low. Um, and, you know, they've, they've only come down. And we had a little bit of an uptick around sort of 2008, 2009 as the previous recession started. Um, and that was just because of increased risk in the market. Um, but since then, you know, farm uh, lending rates have, have declined quite a bit. And in fact, in a lot of places in the country, um, the agricultural sector is still considered a relatively safe investment. And so, uh, you know, lenders are often willing to take uh farm mortgages onto their balance sheet because in the worst case scenario when they default, you own the farm, which still you know retains value. Yeah, and then land is one of the most riskless assets um, or you know for the risk averse investors out there, you know, it, it's a pretty safe uh, place to park all your money. So that's you know yeah, that's- lenders and outside investors alike uh, have definitely view that as, as not very risky. So the, the, you know, the, the classic way of agricultural finance and looking at farmland is that the, the, owns to, the returns to land ownership are relatively low. Um, they're still pretty attractive, obviously, yeah. um, but they're relatively stable. So it's sometimes, uh, you know, I've heard investors say that it's a get rich slowly type asset, right? So you can buy farmland now and then you know, 30 years when you're looking to retire or pass the land off to the to the next generation, it'll have accrued a, a substantial value. What about um, so? My next question deals a little bit around the quality of the farmland because I know you your work and the survey you do you help uh, administer here at Purdue uh, looks at uh, low quality farmland versus average versus high quality. Uh, has, have we seen any differences there in terms of what we've seen in the the farmland market over the past couple of years? Have all of them remained stable, or has low quality land? Um, uh, seen a little bit more softening. Yeah, well, the high quality land, there's definitely always kind of a, uh, a flight to safety, right? So we talk about, you know, what's the best assets and high quality land, especially as when commodity returns really tick up, obviously having a greater and predictable yield per acre helps support those higher values. Um, and also as we see risk, people tend to run into those safer assets. So higher quality land values have held their value a lot more than lower quality. The other side with lower quality uh, land values 
Um, they actually were more impacted by the previous recession, around the Great Recession. And that's a lot of it because uh, lower quality farmland often is what gets developed into residential uses, golf courses, you know, any other sort of land use you want to use. More often than not, we'll buy the lower quality, uh, cheaper farmland. Also, it also has a recreational potential depending on where you are in the country. So if you're a deer hunter or a pheasant hunter or somebody who just wants to uh, camp or uh, have some uh, ground, having it be sort of scrubby and not producing high corn yields is, is you know, can make that uh, still very attractive. So as that market sort of fluctuates, that, that tends to pull those prices down. So generally speaking, I think in, in most parts, and I, you know, I have a bit of a corn belt bias in terms of my research and what I follow, uh, but it's definitely the higher quality land has done really well. That's also where uh, investors, either farmers or other investors, have, have had an appetite for wanting to, to secure more farmland. So you mentioned the you keep mentioning the bringing up this other investor uh, terminology, and and obviously there's a, a lot of talk out there about outside investors in ag, um, you know whether it be real estate investment trusts or, or just other new investors in general, uh, whether it be wealthy uh, wealthy individuals or stuff like that. Uh, what have you seen? How has that shaped the farmland market over the past couple of years? So farmland is still by and large. Um, owned by in small units by families uh, now farm operations will often access you know half of their land base or more from rental markets so they may not own all that market they tend to also rent from you know either previous farmers or you know the heirs to those previous farmers um, so when I talk to people in you know other investment space outside of agriculture they always think you know, we're, we're a very inefficient uh, asset class because you have you know thousands of owners or millions of owners as opposed to having uh, you know a couple of big like we have you know shopping malls or something um, but yeah over uh, it really it, it's there's always been sort of an outside interest in farmland ownership uh, particularly when we mentioned sort of these high net worth individuals so it's not uncommon to have someone who makes a lot of money uh, in some uh, through some other means and recognizes farmland as a good investment. It's like you mentioned, it's a safe, it's a relatively safe asset, um, so it's a good place to park uh, to park money. So we've had that in, in you know, the United States for a very, very long time, uh, but we have had an increase in other investment groups. This really blossomed around the Great Recession period, in terms of people with, you know, able to borrow at very low interest rates and looking to make large-scale investments. Um, that would give them some a bit of active return so they can cash rent the land out or directly operate it themselves and get some return. They'll also see some appreciation. So we have seen some growth in things like retirement and pension funds um, and managed wealth accounts um, and, and some other institutions that have been buying farmland, endowments uh, from universities or uh, charitable organizations. Um, but that's still a very small percentage of the farmland aggregate United States. And the other thing is it's also somewhat lumpy. So we see a lot of institutional investment in things like permanent crops in the western part of the United States. Uh, and there's a little bit here in the Corn Belt uh, in row crop production. Uh, but really a lot of those investments are looking at sort of very targeted um, investment portfolio where they have some direct objective. So, um, you know, but by and large, also when farmland sells, it still mostly sells to farmers. Yeah. Uh, but you know, when the, the other thing is a lot of these uh, other purchases that are made by, by these other investor types 
Um, they also gather a lot of attention, right? So people want to talk about it a lot. Um, but people like to talk about farmland sales. That's a popular yeah. thing. To- yeah, no, I, I think anecdotally, uh, some of, you know, when I talk with some of the the farm management companies here in Indiana, they get a lot of calls when you know they're they're getting ready for an auction of a farmland from these outside investors. But um, at least here recently. Uh, all evidence points that most of the sales are still going back back to farmers. Um, so there's, they're having some impact on the market, but not nearly as much as some people think, uh, or as much as we talk about it, because we definitely talk about it a lot more than uh, than we probably should. Although as economists, we have to point out that prices are made on the margin. And so they don't necessarily have to uh, have a whole lot of the land holding capacity, so much as they influence what's going on in the prices, right? So. Although I don't think that's really happening a lot. Although maybe uh, maybe if they weren't there, uh, it might affect who are going to bid. The other thing about I think that's sort of misunderstood about that sort of class of farmland owners or farmland purchasers. Um, a lot of the institutional structures are buying farmland directly, so they're not necessarily coming to sales or buying from listed sales. Uh, they actually a lot of times will work directly with farmers. Uh, through their networks to to purchase and lease back farms, so it's it's a little bit peculiar, kind of a different setup um, than than some people are used to. All right, so let's uh, you know that kind of summarizes what we've seen in the farmland market over the past several years, and, and some of the your thoughts on how you value farmland. Let's turn our attention to the future, uh, you know, because that's there's a lot going on in the world right now, and if you're listening to this podcast uh, in the future, we're recording here in May of 2020, so we're right in the, the pandemic of, of the coronavirus, so there, that's affecting the farmland markets. There's a lot of um, uh, talk about farm incomes and what's going to happen with uh, corn holdovers and, and corn ending corn stocks and soybean stocks with some of the lingering trade issues. Um, so we have a lot of unanswered questions on the farm income side, uh, and especially with what's happened this spring, you know, there's some um, issues surrounding, well, what's going to be farmland market supply and demand is here in the future? So what are what are your thoughts on supply and demand in the farmland market here through the end of 2020? Uh, through end of 2020 is much harder to guess than what I could think would be in 2025, for example. <laughs> One uh, of the few times that the yeah. short term is harder to predict than the long term. Yeah, I think, because um, I think in this, in this near term, it's much harder to rely on history. Um, I mean, obviously, the coronavirus uh, and and the response that we've had is is trickled out throughout the economy and be human behavior across. Right, so it's it's changing a lot in terms of our uh, food system and food demand, and you know we're eating more at home instead of away from home, and a lot of these disruptions. Uh, we've seen you know absolutely plummeting uh, demand for gasoline and how that affects ethanol. And there's a lot of economists that, that follow those those markets a lot closer. Uh, but the, the nice thing about farmland, the reason it's easy to study is it's it's good for people like me because it moves relatively slowly. So what we have to see is incomes, farm incomes changing, and and giving enough of a of an impact or enough of a strong signal that it changes what people are willing to pay to rent the farm. So the reason you rent in farmland is you think you can make money by farming it. And as long as you think that you can make money, that justifies what your rent will be. And to a large degree, what we are willing to pay for our rents shapes what we think the value of that land will be in, in sales, right? Because we're buying it 
the easiest way to make money when you own farmland is to just rent it out, right? So um, it often gets sort of bid into the price of land of what people can expect. Well, if nothing else, I can rent it for this amount of money. Um, and so all of those things, you know, put, put significant downward pressure on land values. Um, you know, at the same time, our, you know, our interest rates and our lending and borrowing, uh, they don't seem to be in, uh, at this time anyway in May, uh, a big hindrance to major capital investments. Uh, it doesn't seem like the supply or the demand and supply for credit are really uh, change, changing rapidly like what we saw in 2007 or eight with the previous recession. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it, so it'll take some time for these sort of things to work through. Um, you know, in the very immediate term, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I know universities are talking a lot about what they're going to do about fall classes and schools and elementary schools. And so what is what is the fall going to look like in terms of getting groups of people together? I mean, there are people that, you know, we shouldn't have baseball or football or something, right? Getting these big groups together. Uh, and where that affects potentially the farmland market is things that are sold at auction. And I know a lot of auctions have moved to online format or doing listed sales. Um, but but there's still it, a lot of locality in, in how these markets work, right? A lot yeah, of farmers yeah, I mean, don't get online to, to make the bids. I mean, I, I think maybe if they were forced to, the, uh, they will. But if given the preference, the, the in-person auction would still be their, their number one choice. Yeah, and, and most investors live, you know, in the area of their farmland, right? So they, you know, farmers by definition, unless they're wanting to relocate, uh, are looking to buy farmland in their area. Um, also, a lot of investors, like those investors we talked about, are clustered into specific areas for targeted reasons, or these individuals tend to buy in their own local market, right? So it'd be rare that someone in Indiana would be, I, I need to buy, I'm interested in buying some farmland for investment purposes, I'm going to look in Minnesota or Iowa or something. Um, and so those sort of things, you know, the other thing about farmland is it's predominantly sold in the winter when the crops aren't in the ground. Um, and so... Right now, uh, it's hard to really tell. It's really about what's going to kind of happen in November through February of next year. Um, and, and I don't really know. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we have sort of a wait-and-see type attitude with a lot of people, which is really... Uh, so uh, my good friend Wen Nang Zhang at Iowa State, who also studies farmland prices there, um, has some really great data about transfers in, in Iowa. And, and what he has argued, that, that the low supply of land, people not wanting to sell as the prices have come down a little bit, has slowed the price, potential price fall, right? Is that, um, so it could be that, you know, if a lot of, if all of America is in kind of a wait and see attitude, um, to, in terms of, you know, any kind of economic decisions, that that will kind of, you know, have some flattening, the softening of farmland prices, but we may just not see a lot of inventory out there. So restricting supply is going to keep the price up. So that's going to be you know good news for farmers if uh, if you're looking to sell, if you're looking to buy, um, that means that you can probably expect prices similar to what we're seeing now, unless we just see this glut of supply come onto the market, which I don't think we're going to. I, I'm in agreement there with you on that. I don't think we're going to see that. Maybe a, a little bit more, especially if there's people that are looking to sell this spring um, that weren't able to. But I, I don't think that's uh, probably going to affect the market very much at all. No, I, well, and I don't think, I think, I think when people become cautious economically, they're less likely to sell or to buy, right? Yeah. And one of the things about farmland is just by definition, somebody already owns it, right? So 
it's it's not just a matter in terms of you know what people are going to do in terms of should I sell this year or not. Uh, the other side is we you know well farmers say well should I buy or not, and that's where a little bit I think the reduced incomes um, is a little bit of a of, of a concern. Um, you know, just as we've seen drawdown in working capital, the cash reserves that were built up, uh, you know, the, during the commodity price boom, uh, there are still a lot of farmers that are uh, in a good position to make investments, uh, but there are some that that aren't, and a lot of our incomes have been supported now through federal policy, not necessarily directly through marketing, um, and so I think, you know, what that does in terms of people's willingness to buy when they're saying like, you know. Can I buy this? And then the only way I can make money is if these, you know, government programs uh, continue to support it. Um, is is a very different world, I think, than what we had, you know, five or six years ago. So what about the other question, the the, the longer term, which we were joking earlier that it's easier to predict five years out than than at the end of this year. Um, what what is what are your thoughts surrounding maybe? Well, you throughout the twenty twenty five date. Let's just say twenty twenty five. You know, thinking forward, if you're wanting to. If there's a farmer out there that, given all the uncertainties of this year, you say, okay, I, I want to expand my farm, but this year may not be the year, especially everything that's going on, but we're looking to the future. What What's your crystal ball look like for for somewhere in the three to five year time frame? Yeah, so uh, most people that own farmland in the United States tend to own it for about 30 years. Um, and most of the people that own farmland actually the next owner is uh, an, either an heir, a spouse, uh, children, they'll either gift it or sell it to family members uh, or someone they have a close working relationship with. So the ownership structure is very long. Um, and the other thing is I think, if you look at just sort of the recorded history, of, you know, I mentioned that we've been following farmland price in the United States. You know, we have good data back to the early 1900s, late 1800s. Uh, the idea that farmland sort of will appreciate, you know, ahead of inflation and hold its value, um, I think is still a pretty uh, robust asset in that way. So I think my, I, I always am sort of rosy on long run farmland. Um, in fact, one of the things I said several years ago to, uh, to an extension audience and it got repeated back to me, uh, reminded me several times, is that I, you know, I always say that it's, it's rarely a good time to buy farmland but it's almost always a good time to own farmland. Uh, so I think, you know, in five to six years, I would say, you know, I would think farmland prices will be a little bit higher uh, than they are now as a safe bet, but there's also a chance they could be quite a bit higher depending on what happens with, you know, we look at things like, um, you know, global population and global incomes in terms of, you know, calorie and, and, uh, and protein demand around the world and, and all of that sort of trickles back to farmland. So farmland kind of is the, the residual claimant or the the thing that the value of the agricultural sector always kind of capitalizes into the farmland. And so, you know, if we think that ag technology and global supply chains, uh, you know, uh, these things that seem somewhat pie in the sky in May of 2020, it'd be interesting to listen to this a uh, few years to see if, I, if I'm embarrassed <laughs> by this idea, but, you know, things like blockchain or, uh, you know, as we continue to get more and more data-rich decision-making and, you uh, um, yeah, technology for you know uh, crops and seeds and production and machinery, um, you know, all of that value. If, if we're able to add value to the agriculture sector, that will get accrued to farmland eventually. So I think I think you know I I always say if you give me anything longer than five years, I'll say I'm optimistically up 
but I don't want to oversell it and say, we're all going to be rich in five years, but we, we, we will hold our value if not doing it. You're the typical two-armed economist, right? On the other hand, yeah. um, you know, I'll, I guess I'll add on there the one thing that I think that, uh, you know, you mentioned appreciation and inflation. Um, with some of the stimulus that we're currently seeing here in 2020, I do think that we're going to have to revisit the inflation um, debate here here in the near future. I mean, uh, we're looking, you know, we've already spent trillions of dollars on, on the current stimulus package throughout the economy. Um, what's that going to, you know, we're not going to see hyperinflation like certain countries have seen throughout history. But I, I do think that, you know, the Fed typically targets that, uh, if you look at their dot plot, that the 2% inflation um uh, range, which we've historically been under here over the last 10 years. Um, so much of this, some people even question, was well, it really a target if we've never even gone above it? Uh, but I do think that in my mind, we will see a little bit higher inflation given some of the, the government spending and, and stimulus packages we're seeing out there. Is that enough to say that it's going to out uh, outpace what we see in appreciation from farmland? No, I, I do agree with you. It's still a good investment. Uh, it's always a good time to own farmland, but it could make some of those returns a little bit less and could detract from the, the attractiveness of farmland as an investment for those that aren't actually looking to farm it. But um, I, I, I still think it'll be a good, a positive investment moving forward. Well, there is there is an argument too. There, inflation is a curious one, and I, and I spend a lot of time thinking about and reading about inflation. Although, as an agricultural economist, and we're trained in a farm management tradition, so we think from a micro firm perspective, not necessarily macro broad economy-wide. Um, and, and there's a couple of things there. One, I, the, there's a real modern mystery of macroeconomics is where is the inflation, right? So we haven't seen inflation. And there's a variety of, of uh, theories that are people are testing and debating, um, things like demographic change. And so we have this huge glut of baby boomers and their children, the millennials, that are the next big glut pushing through the economy, and maybe that drives down traditional inflationary pressures. We also have increased concentration um, in a lot of our uh, major companies, which maybe will not allow us to push costs through for inflation like we normally would see. Uh, you know, There's a reason so many companies have offices in Bentonville, Arkansas, and it's because if you're gonna sell to Walmart, you've gotta go to Walmart, uh, and they, uh, they wanna keep prices low, right? So they're, they're, they're pushing to make sure there's not a lot of cost pull uh, in terms of uh, 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 pushing inflation to the economy. Uh, so there's a real mystery. I'm not certain that we'll see a lot of inflation. The other thing is, uh, you know, inflation is the general rise of price level of things that are sold in an economy. Uh, that's basically what we think of as inflation. And the root of the things that we buy are commodities, right? So whether that be agricultural commodities or, you know, things like metals. Uh, and so there's a, there's a belief that investments are, in inflationary periods, you should own assets that produce commodities. Um, so if there's a high inflationary period, maybe it's a really good time to own a, don, uh, own a mine. Um, uh, but it's also maybe a really good time to own farmland. There's a, there's a, there's a an argument in the literature. Uh, economists have said that you know farmland is highly correlated with inflation. So even if, so, if we have high inflation, farmland is considered a good investment to have as a hedge against that inflation. That it won't lose the value because as the price of those things goes up, what goes up is the costs you know of our food or of our fuel or cotton t-shirts. Uh, and that and then one of the beneficiaries of that will be the things that produce those commodities. So. 
Um, but I, I'm also I'm 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 not as I as an economist I I don't think, we've never really had and not to reveal our ages too much but you know in the time that we've grown up we we haven't really experienced inflation I mean no. a little bit but it's not. Well, and there was a lot of people that thought we would see it after the 2008 uh, crisis. You know, we had QE1, QE2, and, and you know, that was a, a pretty big glut of liquidity coming onto the general economy. And, and you know, so I, I do agree with your argument a little bit that if we didn't see it then, then we probably won't see it now. But uh, the stimulus packages here have been a little bit bigger than, than the QE1 and QE2. Well, one of the big uh, sort of macroeconomic events of the calendar year is the Jackson Hole meetings, uh, which is put on by the Kansas City Fed. But... Uh, they invite um, you know, uh, central bankers from around the globe to come in and have discussions about central bank policy. Um, and when Janet Yellen was in charge, uh, she gave a really big speech about you know, the biggest mystery in economics is where is the inflation? Why don't we have inflation? Um, so it's, it's a puzzling thing. Um, and, and I also talked to, uh, when Brady, when you and I were in uh, Dallas this year, the president of the Dallas Fed, um, mentioned, I, I asked about inflation. What does he think about inflation? And he said he spends more time worrying about deflation. Um, and he's yeah. a little bit more of a, he, the Dallas Fed is a little bit more sort of business focused, I think, than some of these Feds all have sort of different uh, kind of uh, slants in terms of their, their interpretation of the economy. Uh, but, I mean, there are a lot of people also worried about deflation. Now, I think you're right in you know, May of 2020 with the coronavirus, um, maybe inflation is more of a, of, of a thought than, than deflation. Um, but at least, you know, over the last couple of years, there were a lot of voices saying a word about deflation. Well, with that, we are out of time. Um, thank you, Todd, for spending your time to talk with us today. And just for those of you listening, as a reminder, for more economic information, you can visit uh, the Purdue Center for Commercial Agricultural's website at ag.purdue.edu slash commercial ag. On behalf of the Center for Commercial Ag and Dr. Todd Keithy, um, I'm Brady Brewer, and we thank you for listening.